verse. And today we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5. So if you want to start turning there in your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to be looking at verses uh, 15 through 17. But before we jump in there, I just have uh, a quick story I want to share to give a kind of context to what we're going to do this morning. So before I became uh, one of the pastors here and was put on staff at Midwest Bible Church, I was an employee at CPS. And so when I worked for CPS, there was this annual checkup that we would have. It was highly recommended that everyone participate. And if you work for CPS, I'm sure you're aware of that. Um, as an incentive to make sure that you participated, you were given um, a discount on your insurance, okay? And if you know me, anytime there's free money, it's for me, praise the Lord. So I was going to be at those wellness checkups because I wanted the discount on my insurance. And I haven't been at CPS for over two years now, so you know what's happened is no one has been there to remind me that I need an annual checkup. So for the last two years, I have not gone for any kind of physical or annual checkup. And uh, as I was studying the text this week, I realized that because what we're going to study today is going to be kind of a spiritual examination. It's going to be a spiritual checkup to see where you are. And as I was reading that, I realized spiritually, this is where I am. Physically, I think I should go check out where I am. Amen. So I went to the doctor this week and made sure to get a checkup. And so far, so good. Everything turned out good. I still have to go back for blood work, which I'm not looking forward to because I don't like needles. But uh, the Lord will give me the grace to do that. Amen. Uh, So we're going to be doing that this morning spiritually. So I want you guys, if you have any means to take notes, Take out a notepad so you can write down a couple of things I'm going to give you. And then when you go home this week, since we're going to be fasting all week, this is a perfect week for you to look over some of the, the points I'm going to give you and see where you line up. It's, it's for your own benefit. So I hope you're ready for a spiritual checkup because that's what we're going to do. So after much prayer as a leadership team and, and spending time away trying to figure out where we wanted to take the church in 2019, um, we decided that it would be good to start the new year with just a simple uh, sermon series on Christian living. Just, just understanding how we're supposed to live as Christians. You know, sometimes we, we start wanting to understand all of these great principles and we want to learn all these theological truths. And then we forget, well, how is that supposed to impact me just day to day? Like, what does that mean for me Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday? How, how do I not get into an argument with my wife this week? How do I love my kids rightly? How do I honor the people who I live life with? How do I love my neighbor? And so that's what we've been trying to do. And Pastor Marco has done a phenomenal job. He taught us about lily, lily work, doing what, remember, we're supposed to work for God's eyes only, remembering that he's seen the things that no one else can see. And that should motivate the way you, you, you work, right? It should motivate the way you spend your life and where you spend your time. And then last week, he talked to us about being God's masterpiece and how God is shaping and molding us. And through that, he's going to use us to shape and mold others. Amen? So we've learned these two principles, and today we're going to add to that learning to walk in wisdom. Now, as we understand, we, we, when you hear the word wisdom, you probably have a lot of definitions that come to your mind. So I want to give you this biblical definition I took from a pastor I respect named H.B. Charles, he says this, Wisdom is truth applied. It's the proper application of divine truth or God's word to a given situation. Listen to this. Biblical wisdom is God-centered, not man-centered. So what, what, what is he saying to us there? He's saying that real wisdom 
according to Proverbs, we know comes from fearing the Lord. But real wisdom comes from applying what we, what we see in the Bible to everyday life. Now, there's some people who think they're wise because they go on to college and they get this education. That's, that's worldly wisdom. That's man-centered wisdom. But what we're talking about today is biblical wisdom. And so I want you to see how biblical wisdom is going to be lived out in the Christian life. We, as Christians, claim to have the greatest news ever, right? That's our proclamation. We claim to have the greatest news ever, that in Jesus Christ there is redemption, reconciliation, and forgiveness of sin. That's what we claim. It's a message unlike any other. So here's my question to you. With that proclamation, shouldn't our walk match our talk? Right? Shouldn't our walk match our talk? I mean, if we say that we're forgiven in love, then shouldn't we walk with forgiveness and love towards all people? How can we say we're forgiven in love by God who created all things, and yet we hate our neighbor, or we're not forgiving to those who have sinned against us? Or we say we've been redeemed, right? Which means to be bought with a price. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, redeemed us from sin and the curse of sin. So knowing that Jesus paid such a high price for us, shouldn't we walk in light? Right? If he paid a price for us to be his, shouldn't we walk in light and not go back to the darkness that he redeemed us from? Yet there's so many of us that as we begin to walk this Christian life, we get pulled back into the very life that Jesus saved us from. And we say that we've been reconciled to the Father. So then shouldn't we learn to walk in wisdom? Shouldn't we learn to walk as children who have been reconciled and do what pleases God? Shouldn't that be the motivation of our heart? Shouldn't that come from our relationship with him? I believe so, and I believe that's what Paul it's trying to get us to understand in Ephesians 5, 15 through 17, that because of our new identity in Christ, because of who we are now in Christ Jesus, our practice should match our position. Because it's a contradiction to say one thing and then live another way. Not only do you confuse the world, you confuse the believer who's looking at you. And then don't forget that God is watching too, and so are all the angels. Everyone is peering, looking at you, say, I'm a Christian, yet your life shows no fruit of it. So today we're going to do an examination, and we're going to see where we stand. And we're going to let the Bible do what the Bible does best. It's going to be a mirror. And here's what I'm hoping happens. That for some of us, we're going to see, man, I haven't been walking in wisdom. Yes, I'm a Christian, but I have, I've been a believer who's not walking in wisdom. And you're going to see that there's grace for you. And maybe you're a Christian who has been walking in, in partial wisdom, but I pray that today you learn a little bit more so that you can walk fully in the wisdom that's available to us. Or maybe you're in this room and you're an unbeliever, and you're saying, I don't know anything you're talking about. Then what I'm praying specifically for you is that the Holy Spirit will open your eyes to see the beauty of Jesus Christ, that through him and him alone there is forgiveness of sin, reconciliation to the Father once and for all, so that you can be with him in paradise. So... Let's start off with the, the text. We'll pray and we'll jump right in. So starting in verse 15, we read this. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that we find in it. We thank you first and foremost that you're a God who reveals himself to us. You don't play hide and seek. You show us what you're like. You tell us, come, see, look, 
And Father, as we see and as we look and as we gaze, I pray that we would be overwhelmed by all that we see in you. And then I pray that we would begin to reflect your image in this broken world. Today, as we sit under your word, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would keep me from error. And I pray that you would work in the hearts of every individual here present. Right now, we pray for our minds to be focused, our ears to be open, and our hearts ready to not only understand, but to put into practice everything you're going to show us. We pray all of this in faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Paul, before he gets to uh, chapter 5, verse 15, he writes this amazing verse in 4.1. Paul has spent all of Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3 explaining our position in Christ Jesus as followers of Christ. If you haven't read Ephesians in a while, I, I encourage you, go back and start the new year off by reading Ephesians. Remind yourself of all that has been accomplished. And, and he makes these amazing and profound statements about who we are in Christ. And one of my favorite is that he says that we are seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. And when you read that, it carries this idea of being a citizen of heaven. And, and that always excited me to understand that while I'm here on earth, I have dual citizenship. I belong here, I live here, and I have to follow the rules here. But I also, I'm seated in heavenly places, and I have a heavenly, heavenly citizenship that supersedes anything here on earth. And then Paul, after he presents that marvelous truth for all Christians, now let me remind you, this is for all believers. This ain't just for pastors or theologians or those who, this is for every believer. He goes on to say in, in verse 4, chapter 1, he then swings and shifts gears and says, Now, therefore, I, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you, Christian, to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. What is he saying there? Let me give it to you in English for us today, simple English. He's saying, you, Christian, who belongs to Jesus, who is a citizen of heaven, walk like one. Walk like a citizen of heaven here on earth. Don't wait to get to heaven to live like a citizen of heaven. You're one now. Start acting like it right now. And then he goes on to explain what that looks like. The rest of chapter 4 and chapter 5, he then tells us that as Christians, we should walk in unity. That we should be so unified. And Jesus said that. They'll know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. We should walk in unity. He goes on to talk about you should not walk like the Gentiles. Don't walk like the world. You were just saved from the world, so don't, don't go back to walking like them. Instead, walk like new citizens of heaven. He goes on to say in chapter 5 that we're to walk in love. He says in chapter 4, I forgot this one. It's one of my favorite too. He says walk in the light. And then he finishes chapter 5 by saying walk in wisdom. And that leads me to my opening question, how do we walk in wisdom? We just read it in the text, but how do we do that today living in Chicago? Well, here's our big idea that I hope helps you understand how we can do that, and then we'll break it down. Our big idea is this, as children of God, we're to walk in wisdom by redeeming the precious gift of time. As children of God, we're to walk in wisdom by redeeming the precious gift of time. And to unpack this big idea... We're going to look at three keys to walking in wisdom in such a way that we don't waste our time. We don't waste it. The first key to redeeming the gift of time is learning to examine your walk. Paul starts by saying, I urge you, Christian, I urge you to look carefully then how you walk. 
In other words, pay attention, pay attention, observe the way you live, the way you walk, the way you're spending your life here on earth. And so for the rest of this time, when we hear the word walk, it carries this idea of our conduct, our way of living. So when you hear walk, that's what I want you to think of, conduct, way of living. And when Paul starts off by saying, look then, therefore, how you walk, he's saying, observe carefully how you live your life. Look carefully at how you live your life. I want you to notice that Paul's not talking about where we're walking here. He does that in chapter 4. He says, walk in the light. But right here, he's telling us how we're to walk in the light, in wisdom with understanding. He's not concerned about our pace in which we walk. He's more concerned about how we're walking. When I studied this, it reminded me of a tightrope walker. We used an illustration a few sermons ago about faith and how jumping in and explain, you know, shows your faith when you jump in, not just say, I believe. But the tightrope walker, when you think about it, every step they take has to be with precision, with accuracy, and with balance. Because one false step, what happens to them? They're falling. So every step they take, they take carefully. And this is the idea that we're supposed to have as Christians. When Paul is saying, look carefully how you walk, it means be like that tightrope walker who's careful with every step he or she takes. Christian, this is the way we're supposed to walk. Paul wants us to examine our walk so that we can be sure that we're not deviating from the path. That we're not becoming tied down or bogged down with secondary things that are not even from Scripture, but are just traditions of men, arguments that produce no fruit in the life of a believer. He's saying, be careful with then how you walk. And here's our first important takeaway that we have to understand that as a Christian, how we conduct ourselves in day-to-day matters, day-to-day living matters to God. Listen to me. How you conduct yourself day-to-day matters to God. He cares about every moment, every opportunity of your life. There's never a part of your life where he says, that doesn't matter to me. Unimportant. Every moment matters. And so I have a quick a little jab for some of us in this room. For example, let me give you a reason why I said this. Pirated movies. How many of you guys watch pirated movies in the room? Don't raise your hand. But I'm sure if you open your laptop, I'll know some of you because it's going to pop up all the junk that comes up with that. Pirated movies. And you're probably saying, come on, Pastor Lucas, that's not a big deal. I mean, they make a lot of money anyways. Um, So it's not really that big. Yeah, yeah, it actually is. Because Paul and scriptures tell us that we're a citizen of heaven and that we're supposed to walk in light of that truth. So do you think as a citizen of heaven it's becoming of you to break the law of the land that you live in? No, it's not. But if we were willing to break the law on something so small, then we're going to have that same kind of reasoning when it comes to something bigger. If we can't obey in the little, we'll never obey in the much. How does Jesus put it? How does the scripture put it? When you're faithful with a little, too much has been given, much will be required. But when you're faithful in the little, you'll be faithful with more. Amen? Pirated movies. I know it's funny, but as a manner of, uh, the manner of life you're living should point everything you do should point to Jesus. 
And that means you should be able to tell someone, I'm not going to watch this because I belong to Jesus. So Paul says, examine your walk. See to it that you don't walk as unwise people, but walk as wise people. And Paul will use this contrast for the rest of our time together purposely. And I love it because the comparison between the wise and the unwise is scattered all throughout Scripture. And Paul's going to build on this. And so, for instance, let me give you a few nuggets that should come up behind me. In Proverbs 1-7, we learn this about a wise person. We learn that a wise person fears the Lord. That's where the beginning of wisdom starts. Fears the Lord. But then in that same verse, it says, The unwise person despises wisdom and instruction. A wise person fears the Lord. An unwise person will say, I despise wisdom and instruction, especially when it comes from the Word of God. I despise what the Bible has to say. So we can know just by that that they're a fool according to the Bible. Don't write me emails. I didn't call them a fool. The Bible's calling them a fool. I'm backing up what the Scripture says. In Proverbs 10.23, we read this. A fool slash unwise person finds pleasure in wicked schemes. Listen to that. A fool finds pleasure in wicked schemes. And then in Proverbs 15.21, we learn that a man of wisdom walks straight ahead. A man of wisdom walks straight ahead. So let's examine our walk this morning. Which one are you? Where does the fruit of your life lie? Are you walking as a wise person? Do you fear the Lord? Are you walking the path that God has placed you on straight ahead, trusting and obeying the Lord day by day? Or are you walking as a fool who despises the wisdom and instruction of the Lord? who reads the Bible and says, yeah, that's not for me. That's for them back then. But for me today, I'm going to live it my way. Because according to the Bible, you're unwise. Are you scheming to do wrong? Like, do you plan wickedness? Do you find pleasure in wickedness? If you do, then the Bible says of you today that you're the unwise person. And brother and sister, we must learn to examine our hearts because it's imperative that we walk in wisdom. This is not a... Paul is not giving us an option. He's not saying, if you want to be the type of Christian that walks in wisdom, this is a, he's saying that as Christians, you, therefore, walk in wisdom. That's the way we're supposed to walk. Now, if you're in the room and you realize, man, I, I lean more towards the unwise person. I, I lean more towards the person who, who doesn't fear the Lord or who's become bored with Jesus or who, who finds pleasure in wickedness, then, then I do have hope for you. And it's found in 1 John 1, 9, because we read this. It says, if we confess our sins, he, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you're in this room right now and you see inconsistency with the way you're living your life and your proclamation of who Jesus is, then I encourage you, don't even wait for me to finish. Right where you are right now, confess your sin to Jesus and receive the forgiveness that's available for you. And then what am I to do, the pastor, after that? Then put into practice what you're about to learn right now. Here's our second key for walking in wisdom is learning to redeem the time. How does a wise person walk according to Paul? In our text, it says, make the best use of your time. So we're staying right in the text because Paul's giving us everything we need here. He says, walk not as unwise, but walk as wise. And then he gives you how to do that. He says, Make the best use of your time. This is how we walk in wisdom. That word translated best, make the best, suggests the idea of buying back or rescuing something. 
That's what it means in the Greek. Buy back or rescue something. And that word translated time carries the idea of moments. Not the hours on the clock, not like the seconds, like, not like, but the moments of life, the opportunities that life presents itself. So the principle that Paul is saying governs the walk of a believer is this, that they learn to buy back the moments or opportunities of life from wastefulness. Listen to me. We learn to buy back those moments of life from wastefulness. Ovi, one of the elders here at Midwest Bible Church, sent me this text message on Wednesday and I believe it drives Paul's point home. It reads like this. It says, time is free. Listen to me. Time is free, but it's priceless. You can't own it, but you can use it. You can't keep it, but you can spend it. Once you've lost it, you never get it back. Once you've lost it, you never get it back. That last phrase right there, when I first read it, sent shivers down my spine. Once you've lost it, you can never get it back. You see, money you can lose, but you could always gain money back. Time, when you waste it, you never get it back. That's it. That 24-hour period, those moments of life, those precious opportunities that God has gifted you, once they're gone, they're gone. So there's no point in looking back. All we can do is say, God, forgive me for my wastefulness then and help me now to live purposely moving forward. Now, I'm a dad of teens. I, I started young. I don't recommend it that way. But I'm 38 years old. I have a 20-year-old. She's about to be 21. You do the math. That means I had her when I was 17, or my wife had her at 17. My wife was 16. We're young. Our kids are old now. But I look back at some of my time with them, and I realize I wasted opportunities. But I can't cry over spilled milk. But what I can do is make sure that the time I have left with them is not wasted anymore. I'm buying back those moments by pointing them to Jesus and reminding them, this is where you find your joy. And so this was encouraging to me this week to say, Lucas, continue to buy back those moments. Because your life isn't over yet. There's still a lot of life to live. All people get the same 24-hour period of time. All of us have different moments that will present itself throughout the day. However, have you noticed that some people don't... Um, use their time wisely, or some people get more out of a 24-hour period than others? Have you ever noticed that? Like, you look at someone, you're like, how did you accomplish all of that? And I'm not telling you, because here's the other thing. Here's the other extreme. We have two extremes when it comes to time, either laziness or workaholic. Both are wrong. But there's a proper balance in the middle where you're redeeming that time. But some people use it wisely. How? I believe that it's found in this text. According to what Paul says, the unwise person wastes those moments, but the wise person learns to redeem them. How do they learn to, be, to redeem them? Because they begin to live with a sense of urgency. They begin to live with urgency. And according to Webster, urgency is the state of or quality of being urgent, which means calling for immediate attention. Warren Wisby, who was a pastor at Moody Bible Church, said this, one of the greatest tragedies in life is wasted opportunities, not making the most of what God has given us. Too many of us are allowing for precious moments to be wasted. Too many of us are throwing away today's opportunities by saying, I'll leave it for tomorrow. No urgency. What we need as believers now and what we need to pray for this next week of prayer and fasting is that God would give us a sense of urgency. The psalmist will put it this way. In Psalms 90, I believe it's 2, the psalmist says, teach me to number my days. That was his prayer. 
God, don't, don't let me be the fool who thinks I'm going to live forever. Instead, teach me to number my days. Teach me to understand that time is short. And even if you live to be 90, 95, or 100 in comparison to eternity, isn't that still short? A hundred years is but a mist, the Bible would say. And yet we act and we live like that's all we have. And that's, there's more to life than just living for pleasure on this earth. This is not our final home. This is not our final destination. This is not our heaven. This is not our kingdom. Why don't we have urgency? Because we're, 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 we're buying the lies that the enemy is selling us. To, to live your best life now. If living your best life now means sacrificing, putting others before yourself, seeking the kingdom of God first, then yes, live that kind of life now. But if living your best life now means for you to live comfortably, save to have a big retirement fund so that when you get to be 60 years old, you can go to Arizona and, 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 and die one day and, and live your drinking the rest of your life or whatever it is they offer, that is not your best life. That's a pathetic life. Living your best life, I, I, I want to be like those theologians we read about that it says that they carried them in to preach their last sermon, and then he went home and died. Carry me in. If I still have breath in my lungs, put me up somewhere so I can be like, Jesus is better than anything in this world, and then let me die and go home to be with the Lord. But we have to learn to live with urgency. And as a father and as a husband, I need to understand and learn to pray like the psalmist did, but to live that way. And instead of thinking, yeah, I'll be here forever, what if today is my last day? One of my friends right here who's sitting to my left, he texted me yesterday that his uncle had a stroke. And I was talking with my wife, we prayed for him, and I said, do you think that man started off this week saying, you know, today, today I'm gonna, this week I'm going to die, uh, this week I'm going to have a stroke. This week, I think I might be brain dead by the end of this week. You, you think that's how he started off his week? No. But life happens. And we never know when that moment's going to come. And the Bible tells us to live like it could happen today. Now, that doesn't tell you to live fearfully. I'm not telling you to live with a morbid thought that you walk around, I don't want to go outside because I might get hit by a car today. I don't want to plug that in because I might get electrocuted today. I don't want, that's not what we're telling you. It's not what I'm teaching. That's not what the Bible teaches. But it says to live with a sense of urgency knowing that one day you won't be here. Live with no regrets. Know that you did everything you can do that if the Lord were to take you home, you have no regrets. Because you invested your time where it mattered. Now, by learning to redeem the, the moments of life, here's what Paul's not telling us to do. He's not telling us to run and hide from culture. He's not saying... Uh, seclude yourself and isolate yourself from this bad world. Instead, he's saying, no, when you're in this bad world, when you're walking in the midst of darkness, you walk in light and learn how when those opportunities present yourself to allow the light of the gospel to invade the darkness in those moments. Learn how to do that. Learn how to redeem those times. Shine the light in darkness to the glory of God. Now, how do we do that? Well, a couple of practical ways is, one, instead of wasting your time talking about weather, sports, or fashion, whatever it is you talk about when you meet a stranger, talk about how God transformed your life. You may not have the, all the theological terms down packed. That's okay. 
The real world doesn't need theologians talking to them. The real world needs God's workmanship, those individuals who've been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, to go out and say, let me tell you what Jesus has done in my life and in my heart and what he can do for you. And then you know what happens? We come to church together. We grow together. We read the word of God together. You read good books together. You start studying doctrine and theology together. And now your heart is being filled with all of this truth. And you know what happens to you? You know what should happen to you? You become a worshiper of God in spirit and truth. That's what should be happening in our lives. Redeem those moments. Redeem those conversations. Around the dinner table. Listen to me. Around the dinner table, put away your cell phones. Put away the iPads. Turn off the TVs. Put away all devices that would take your attention from the people right before you in that moment. We have a rule in my house that no phones at the table. You know who breaks that rule all the time? Me. And my kids have to rebuke me when I do. They always tell me, Dad, Dad, what's our rule, Dad? What's the rule you put in place? And I'm always like, oh, kids. And I have to put it away. But you know what? Those moments are going to be memorable for my kids when they're adults and I'm long gone. And I pray that they'll keep the dinner table holy to talk about things that matter, to invite God to have complete control of all of our lives and all of our time. Those are little moments you could start buying back right now. Make it purposeful. Now you're saying, well, what am I supposed to talk about at dinner? Buy a devotional. Buy a good devotional that you can read together and just say, what do you guys think about that? Teach your kids how to think deeply about God. What a noble thought. I wish my dad would have done that with me. He didn't. You know what my dad taught me, though? How to pray. Because I would walk into my room and I would see that man on his knees, broken. He never read the Bible in front of me. He never did much in front of me, but he would always pray. And I would see him praying. That made an impact on my life. So my job was to now take that and add another level. And I pray that one day my kids will take what I've done with them and add another level until Jesus Christ returns. But you can start redeeming those moments. Missionary Jim Elliott, who's a missionary to Ecuador, he died in the 50s um, on mission for Jesus. They found this journal. And his, one of his last journal entries before he passed was this, before he was martyred. He said this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Listen to that. He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep. What was he talking about there? Well, I read through the journal entry, and under there, there was a reference to Luke, so I think he was talking about money. But I believe this applies to time as well. Because he is no fool who begins to give of himself, give himself wholeheartedly to the opportunities and moments that God gives us. Give, sacrifice, live inconvenienced right now, because what we gain, we'll never be able to lose. Where is it better to make the investment? Make the investment in eternity. Where nothing, no moth, no rust will steal it from you. Because God is holding it to you, for you, and when he gives it to us, no one will ever take it from us. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Instead of working for things that you're going to lose, invest yourself in the things that you will never lose, church. Redeem 
the times. How do we start doing that? First, by prioritizing. We must learn to prioritize what's essential from non-essential. And I hope this illustration helps. You've probably heard it before, but it works so good, we're going to say it anyways. One day, an expert was speaking to a group of students. And to drive a point home, he used an illustration I'm sure those students will never forget. The man said, time for a quiz. Then he pulled out a gallon, a wide-mouthed mason jar, and set it on a table in front of him. And he produced about a dozen fist-sized rocks and carefully placed them one at a time into a jar. When the jar was filled to the top and no more rocks would fit inside, he asked, is the jar full? Everyone in the class said yes. Then he said, really? And he reached under the table and pulled out a bucket of gravel. Then he dumped the gravel and shook the jar, causing pieces of gravel to work themselves in between the spaces between the big rocks. Then he smiled and he asked the group again, is the jar full? By this time, the class was on to him. Probably not, one of them answered. Good, he replied. And he reached under the table and brought out a bucket of sand, and he started dumping sand in it and went into all the spaces left between the rocks and the gravel. And once more, he asked the question, is this jar full? No, the class shouted. And once again, he said, good. Then he grabbed a pitcher of water and began to pour it in the jar until it was filled to the brim. Then he looked up at the class and asked, what is the point of this illustration? And one eager beaver raised his hand and said, the point is, no matter how full your schedule is, if you try really hard, you can always fit some more things into it. No, the speaker replied. That's not the point. The truth this illustration teaches us is, if you don't put the big rocks in first, you'll never get them all in. Matthew 6.33 teaches us that same principle this way. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be added to you. Now let me give you some clarity there. Seeking, first, seeking God first doesn't mean that you put God to the top of your checklist. That's not what we're encouraging. That's not what Scripture is encouraging. It's not saying God first and then I'll fit everything else. No, what it means is that God becomes the center of all of your life. And everything flows from that. He becomes your priority. The kingdom of God becomes your priority. Why? Because you're a citizen of heaven. And now you want to walk out your citizenship here on earth. This is essential to walking in wisdom. Second, be disciplined. In 1 Timothy 4, 7, Paul told his young disciple this. Train yourself for godliness. Listen to that. Train yourself for godliness. So you know what that means? You, you don't trip and become godly. It's not going to just happen. You're not going to wake up one day. This ain't the matrix where you get to call in and say, Trinity, uh, yeah, I want to learn how to fly a helicopter. And then you learn how to fly a helicopter. That, that's not how this works. Let me help you now. That's not how the Christian life works. Instead, it says here, train yourself for godliness. How do you do that? How do you train? You become disciplined. No amens there, right? That's, that never gets amens when we talk about living discipline. Train yourself to live godly. Train yourself to learn to be self-controlled. Pray for the Holy Spirit to help you, to encourage you, to empower you to live this Christian life. So what does that look like in your life to be disciplined? That means that you don't binge seasons of shows on Netflix for 10 hours a day. Ooh, that, that one stung, right? Because you're like, ooh. Ooh. That means that when the new season comes out, there's 24 episodes. You don't watch 24 and feel like you accomplished something. 
Because you got people that be like, I watch all that in one sitting. And then the next week they're like, I don't know why I can't hear God. Let me, let me. You watch 24 one-hour episodes, and, right? That's Self-discipline. It's okay to say no to yourself. You understand that? that? That's a Christian word too, right? No, Lucas, no, that's not good for you. And it, it, it may not be bad, but for you right now where you are, that's not best. And I need to learn to prioritize what's best and say no to some other things that are just going to distract me. And lastly, be intentional with the moments given to you. Too many times we waste the moments of life because we've forgotten our purpose. We forgot that all of life matters. All of life has a purpose. And, and what's our purpose? If we just stick to Ephesians, if we're going to stick to uh, what, what Paul is talking about here, Paul tells us the purpose of life in, in 2 Corinthians. He says that God saved you by grace through faith, right? We love that verse, uh, 2 Corinthians, or Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And it talks about all the power. You were dead, but now you're alive. And then he says this cool phrase there right before he says where his workmanship. He says, why does he do all this? For the praise of his glorious grace. What's the purpose in life? That when the world sees the work that God has done in you, that they look at him and say, how wonderful and marvelous is your work. It's not that they look at you and be like, wow, Danny's a really smart guy. I, I, wow. That's a, no, they look at Danny and say, I know him. I remember him before Jesus. And if that's what God did in him, that is a powerful God. That's what our life should do. That's the purpose we live with. Remember Jim Elliot, he lives with intentionality. That is why he could say he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what she, that which he cannot lose. What would our lives look like if we started to live with that as our motto? He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So how does one live life with purpose? I believe the answer is found right here in verse 17. And it's our last point. It's the point Paul's trying to make here. He says, Learn to understand what the will of God is. And to read it verbatim, because I just love how he does this. He says, therefore, because of what I told you in 14, or 15 and 16, do not be a fool, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now that Paul started with a call to wisdom, so he starts us off, and now he's closing by saying, don't be foolish. Walk in wisdom don't be a fool. That's the bracket. Now, that word translated fool here, I loved it. it, meant senseless or stupid. Don't be stupid. Don't be senseless as you walk in this world. How do we identify a senseless person? The Bible gives it to us real clear in Psalm 53.1. The Bible says that the fool, the senseless person, the stupid person, says in their heart, there is no God. There is no God. As a Christian, the moment you hear someone make that statement, the first thing that should come into your head is, I'm dealing with a fool here. Now, I'm not telling you to tell them that. Just so you can discern how you need to now maneuver your conversation with them. How do I witness to someone who's a fool according to the Bible? You have to discern the people you're talking to. And he says here in Scripture that the fool says there is no God. And I know what some of you are thinking. Because I had the same thought when I was studying through it too. Well, I know a lot of smart people. I know a lot of people who have a lot of letters at, after their name. And they say that there is no God. So are you telling me that the Bible says that they're a fool? Absolutely. 
I've heard old timers put it this way, that they're just an educated fool. They went to school and they came out of school as an educated fool, but they're still a fool because the person who says that there is no God, that's what scripture tells us about them. And why is that dangerous? Well, a foolish person is dangerous because they believe since there is no God, then they're going to live their life according to that. That means that they live as if God is not present. That means that they live as if God doesn't care. That means that they live saying, God, you are not worthy of my devotion and my worship. And that means they live their lives as fools. They will be the opposite of what Jim Elliott was talking about there. The opposite. Paul's using contrast again because he exhorts us as believers to do the opposite. He says, if a fool exists and says that there is no God then we as Christians are to live as those who know that he does exist. And guess what? He rewards those who seek him. Isn't that beautiful? Hebrews eleven six, where it says that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. That's why I like to say God isn't playing hide and seek. That when he opens your eyes and you begin to pursue him, he is going to continue to reward you with what? With more of himself, which is the greatest reward we can ever receive. Now, some of you are probably saying, but pastor, I believe I believe. I believe in God. I'm not a fool. And here's the problem we find today, that there's many who profess to believe in God, but they live, I think Daniel Henderson uh, uh, quoted this once, as practical atheists. You say the right things, but your life says something totally different. You live like a practical atheist, which in essence makes you a fool. So how do we avoid living like fools well, according to Paul in the text here, he says, by understanding what the will of the Lord is. You don't want to live like a fool? Praise God, neither do I. How do we do that? Don't, uh, how do we not live like a fool? Understand what the will of the Lord is. And now I know when I say that, it gets very complex. Because now all of you guys are thinking, well, what is the will of the Lord? So let me try to simplify what Paul's saying here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Because there's nothing more important for us as Christians to under, than to understand and apply the will of the Lord in our lives, to understand what God's will is. I'm going to take this from theologian uh, John Stott. I was reading through some commentaries, and I thought he explained it best. He calls this uh, the general will and the particular will. And here's what he says. It should come up behind me. The general will relates to generalities of his people and is the same for all of us. Example, to make us like Christ. That, that's God's will for everyone in this room. His particular will, however, extending to those particularities of life is different for each of us. Example, what career shall we follow, whether we should mar whom we should marry, or whether we should marry, and if so, whom? End quote. So, to take what John Stott is saying, God's general will is found in Scripture. Do we all agree? God's general will is found in Scripture. For example, it is God's will for all believers who are married to be faithful to your spouse. Okay, only two couples said amen. There's a big problem with that, you know. And one engaged person. He's not even married yet, but I'm glad you said it, brother. You better be faithful. Break your legs to the glory of God. Now, general, that's for all of us right? Husbands, love your wives, not optional. That's for all of us. Wives, submit to husbands. That's not optional. That's for all of us. Children, obey your parents. Children, obey your parents. Children, obey your parents. I'm waiting for you guys to say amen. For the, I want the kids to say amen. Youth, say amen. Obey your parents. You're not even doing this. They don't even obey me. My kids right now, Lord, help them. 
in service, embarrassing. All right, so we know, general, this is everyone's supposed to do this. Now, I've heard a pastor say, and this is, I, I found it funny. He says, you want to know God's will for your life? Read your Bible. And then he said, some people say, but I want to hear God tell me what his will for my life is. And he replied to them, then read your Bible out loud. That's how you know God's will for your life. Now, on the other hand, God's particular will for our lives will not be found in the black and white of Scripture. The Bible doesn't tell you the exact person you're going to marry or the vocation you're going to choose, right? I mean, that would be awesome if it did because then you don't waste your time dating all these other losers until you find the right one. Forgive me if you're one of the losers that got dumb. Uh, I don't know why I said that. Lord, forgive me. Sorry. Um, however, we can find biblical principles to help guide us when Scripture isn't clear. Listen, we can help. We can find principles in Scripture to help guide us when Scripture isn't clear about what we should do. For example, is what I'm about to do honor God? That, that, that should be the baseline. Is what I'm about to do, does this honor God? If the answer is no to that, you can bat a hundred by saying, then maybe I shouldn't do it. I don't think God's will will ever be for me to contradict honoring him. So if it doesn't honor God, no, it's not God's will. You don't have to call a pastor. You don't need counseling from friends. We just made your life easy right there. No. Is it going to cause me to do questionable things that would cause me to possibly sin against God? If the answer is yes to any of that, then it's not God's will for you to do it. Okay? If you're looking for dating tips, Jesus gave the best one. Don't be unequally yoked. I don't care how cute they are. Just take Jesus' advice. He's smarter than you. I promise you. He's saving you a lot of heartache. If they don't love Jesus now, they won't love Jesus when you marry them. Okay? And in case someone's listening by way of uh, online, uh, don't missionary date. Don't date with the hopes of I'm going to get them converted. That's, it doesn't work. Trust scripture that says bad company ruins good morals. Trust that they'll change you before you change them. Just obey Jesus. The answer is no. If they're not a Christian, move on. Sorry, even if they're cute. God has cute believers too, okay? Now, Many want to know the specifics or a particular will of God for their life. They, everyone wants to know that. Well, what does God specifically want me to do? But here's the thing. Some of those very people, some of us in this room, we want to know that, but we're not even obeying the general will of God. We're not even obeying what we do know. So why would you expect that God would tell you a particular will, of, a plan of his, when you're not even obeying the stuff that you do know that's in black and white? Here's the thing. If we would learn as Christians to walk in wisdom, and walking in wisdom is understanding what God wants us to do, and we start obeying what God has already told us to do, then as we're on that path and we're not deviating and we're walking on that tightrope carefully, observing accurately, guess what? The particular will of God is going to become known to you, and you're going to continue to fulfill it. Why? Because you're already obeying in the, the general stuff. So let's not overcomplicate. Let's not try to over-spiritualize. Here's God's will for your life. Obey him. Obey him. Start with what is written. Obey there. And as every other decision comes, he will lead and guide you 
Obey in the little, and he will continue to lead you where you need to go. Romans 12 says it best when it says, how, how are we supposed to overcome the world? By renewing our mind. How do you renew your mind? Get in the word of God. Pray fast. Now, some of you are probably saying, yeah, but, but Pastor Lucas, God, God never speaks to me in, in those ways. Well, possibly, could it be, hypothetical, that he's speaking to you clearly through his word, but you're not listening or putting into practice what he's clearly speaking. Sometimes we want something special when all we got to do is just trust what is already there for us. We, we just do what he tells us to do. Do it in love and do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. As I close, I don't need the worship team up yet, but we're done with the sermon. And I wanted to shift focus and give some instruction on what's happening here this week.